the most savage chapter in the Bible was just read to you. I wouldn't be surprised if it was the first time that many of you actually heard that story or even knew it was there. It's so horrifying and so gruesome and raw. So I preach on this story. I preach on this story when it would be so easy to just sweep it under the rug and move on. Maybe for some of you it almost feels like a cruelty. Because it makes you relive the most painful events of your life. And it tears at the deepest wounds that a human can possess. I do not know who you are. But I know you're here. And I know it hurts. So I just want to say up front, you're safe. You're safe this morning. Over the last two weeks as I've sat with this woman, her story has become holy ground to me. Her pain has become something just precious, something sacred. The same is true of yours. The most haunting part of this story for me is her silence. The author never lets her speak. It's written so that we would feel the full weight of her victimization and her powerlessness. And maybe you know that silence. Because no one was ever willing to listen. To hear you. And that was just as painful as what happened to you. Like actually living out that nightmare where you scream, but nothing comes out. So if anything, at least let the fact that we're preaching on this story say to you, we hear you. We'll listen to you. And I say that for so many more than just me. Asking why we preach on this story really just gives way to a more fundamental question. Why is this story in the Bible in the first place? Typically, you see a sermon series on Judges end with chapter 16 with Samson, where his sacrificial death provides a great opportunity to wrap up the whole series with a nice little bow. But that's not how Judges ends. It ends with this in all of its hopeless horror. It's even strange to think about the fact that at at one point in time, Judges was the last book of the Bible. And this was how it ended. And at the beginning of this series, we said how Judges is a downward spiral. But to understand what Judges is trying to tell us, we have to be willing to go where it wants to take us. And we have to be willing to follow the spiral all the way down. And what an epic fall it is to go from the Garden of Eden where we heard man say to his wife, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, to now seeing him chop bone and mutilate flesh. 
This story is here because the Spirit is grabbing us by the face and making us look at the reality of evil in all of its stomach-churning and overwhelming sadness. And it takes its time telling us the story. I shortened it. Because make no mistake, it wants us to sit in it and feel the weight of all of it. Because so often we don't want to look at evil, do we? Either in the world or around us or especially in us. We'd rather sweep it under the rug and go on with our lives so that we don't have to ask deeper questions or look for deeper answers. And judges is a warning. Judges is a warning, and this last story is the loudest. Not about all that evil that's out there somewhere and everybody else, but about evil within the people of God. This story is here because it's telling us something about us. But secondly, we have to preach on this story because we know this woman so brutalized and broken. We've met her countless times. For those of you who've gone to India, didn't you meet her in the Kaligat Red Light District? Pam, you gave her a cross stitch with a heart that said he loved first. Charlie, Noah, Debbie, you sat with her and painted her fingernails. Ray, You gave her a card that said, God sees her. You know this woman. And in three months, when our first team goes to Malawi, we will meet her again. Women who live in a world that says a man can rid himself of AIDS if he robs a young woman of her innocence. But she's also here in this church. She represents both the women and men who carry the wounds of their life in secret and in silence, living with a quiet skepticism that, yeah, sure, the gospel applies to many things, but it won't ever touch that. She's here in our surrounding community, one in four women, one in six men, whose lives have been mutilated by all sorts of evil in all sorts of ways. So why cover this passage when it would be so easy to look the other way? Because we live in a Judges 19 world. Filled with stories just like this woman. And what do we have to offer them? Just our silence? Just a desire to look the other way? Because we feel that the gospel can't speak or have anything to say to such evil and such heartache? Do we just want to look away and sweep it under the rug because it makes us face our own despair that evil just wins in the end? The truth is, if we shy away from this story here, then we will shy away from it every other time that we see it. So then what are we even doing here then? If all we're doing is just holding fast to a gospel that's only big enough for first world problems and cowers in the face of evil. In reality, this story puts the question back to us. Why are you really here? 
Are you really here because you believe that the gospel has made a full account for the depth of evil in this world? Do you really believe that it is a cure or do we just use it like palliative care? Something to make us feel better about living in a world where evil only seems to win in the end. Later this year when we roll out our core values, one of them is restoration and renewal. Because we want to be a place where people find healing in Jesus Christ. Where the deepest wounds caused by the most destructive evil can be healed and made whole in him. We want to be a church where the victory of Christ is on full display in the life of his people. But all that depends on who we choose to be. Do we want to play church or be the church? Do we want to be comfy or consecrated? And this passage this morning shows us two things. First, it's a warning about the people we could become. And two, even though it's hard to see, it points to the beauty of the people that we can be. Judges ends by telling us about a Levite priest. I think this Levite priest in Judges 19 is the same Levite priest in Judges 17 and 18, who betrayed his duty to the Lord and became a priest for hire. He created a cult devoted to an idol in the hill country of Ephraim. But it also tells us about his wife, a young woman from the tribe of Judah. But we need to understand a few things about this woman. It also calls her a concubine. And in this particular situation, it means that she was married without a dowry. Her father didn't pay the Levite her inheritance upon their marriage because she was probably from a poor family, so it means that the Levite actually paid the father to marry her. But then it says she was unfaithful to him and went to live with her father. Now there's a footnote in your Bible on that word, because many manuscripts do not say unfaithful. They say she left because she was angry with him. She left because she was angry with him. That's actually my view. Not that she committed adultery, but that she found herself having married this Levite priest who betrayed his God and instead became a priest that created an idolatrous cult in the tribe of Dan. He is the one who committed adultery, not her. And she'd had enough. She returned to her father's house. It mentions nothing about her sexual indecency. And she wouldn't have been allowed back into her father's house as an adulteress. And it also says that the Levite was the one who goes to win her back. This is not a Hosea-like moment from this Levite. Because what we see him do shows that he hardly possesses covenant love for his bride. So the Levite goes to her father's house to win her back to him. 
And her father convinces the Levite to stay multiple nights eating and drinking. But after five nights, the Levite wants to return home. So he takes his servant and his concubine and he leaves. And as the day was ending, they needed lodging for the night. They passed by Jerusalem. Because at this time it was a Canaanite city belonging to the Jebusites, so they didn't go in. So they pushed on and they stopped at Gibeah, an Israelite city belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. But when they get there, something's wrong. They sit in the square all day, but everyone passes them by and no one takes them in. Hospitality was sacred in the ancient world, and to not offer it was the deepest and most utter rejection and insult. Because this is the part of the horror movie where everyone looks at them with eyes that say, you're not welcome. Evil lives here. Finally, an old man comes up to them and asks where they're from, and he asks where they're going, and he says that he'll take them in for the night, but they cannot stay in the square. There is an evil that walks at night in this city. So that night, the old man and the Levite decided to have a good time eating and drinking. And then they heard a banging at the door. A mob of men of the city who were outside and demanded that the old man send out the Levites so that they might know him. That request is about power and disgracing his guest. It's evil for the sake of evil. It's nothing more than a desire to desecrate. And the way this story is written It's intentionally echoing another story. It uses the exact same language of these Israelites in Gibeah as it does in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because it's telling you once again about the spiritual condition of Israel. Now, they are fully Canaanized. They have become a people worthy of judgment. And the old man resists and he offers his daughter and the Levite's concubine instead of his guest. But these men in their evil would not be denied. So to save himself, this Levite grabbed his wife and pushed her out the door into the hands of sinful men. At sunrise, this woman crawled her way back to the house and fell at the threshold with her hands on the door. And when the Levite walked out the door the next morning to get ready to leave, he saw her lying there. And in perhaps the coldest part of the story, he just stepped over her and said, get up, we need to go. Like she was a dog. But there was no answer. So the Levite puts her on a donkey, goes home. 
dismembers her body and he sends it out to the 12 tribes of Israel because he had the audacity to be angry and demand justice. The way this story is told is so savage. But it's so intentional. The author never gives her a name, never lets her speak. She's utterly victimized, dehumanized, robbed of dignity, value, worth, and life, even in the retelling of it. Because it wants us to see the horror of her story first. Because what happens next only magnifies this woman's pain on a scale that's incomprehensible. Because this woman was just the beginning. And so here's the rest of the story. Each of the tribes received this grotesque male, and they are outraged at this evil. And so the tribes rally together as one man, except the tribe of Benjamin. They didn't show up, and they refused to turn over the men who committed this atrocity, and they sided with the perpetrators. So the 11 other tribes did two things. They took an oath to never marry their daughters to the tribe of Benjamin, And secondly, they declared civil war on the tribe of Benjamin. So they burned the cities of the Benjamites. They killed their men, women, and children, all of them. And the irony is that Israel finally united together to engage in holy war. But it was against their own instead of the Canaanites that God had commanded them. And eventually, there are only 600 Benjamites left in the entire tribe. And so the 11 tribes stopped. And they said that they didn't want to destroy one of their own tribes entirely. But since they had killed all of the Benjamite women and also made an oath to not marry their daughters to the Benjamites, they had a problem. How? Would the tribe continue then? So the 11 tribes asked if there was anyone else who didn't show up to their gathering at the beginning. And they realized that no one had come from the city of Jabesh Gilead. So they sent 12,000 soldiers to Jabesh Gilead and they told them to kill every man and every woman except for the young virgins so that they could take them as wives and give them to the remaining Benjamites. But they only found 400 virgins and were still 200 short. And so they formulated another plan, and the evil only cascaded. In Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, a festival was coming up. And at this festival, the young women would go out and they would dance in the fields. So the 11 other tribes told the remaining 200 Benjamite men without a wife to go and lie in ambush. And when the young girls came out to kidnap them and take them for their wives. But here's the thing. The fathers of those girls were part of making this plan. And the other tribes reassured them that they weren't breaking their oath by allowing this to happen, by giving their daughters to the Benjamites, because since their daughters were kidnapped, 
they weren't officially giving them in marriage. So the Benjamite men hid in the fields. They kidnapped the dancing young girls, and they took them home as wives. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So ends the book of Judges. The trauma of this story is overwhelming. What started with this concubine ends with the killing of thousands of men and women and children and the kidnapping and forced marriage of 600 innocent girls. And if you're trying to make sense of this story, don't. It's not supposed to make sense. That's the point. Evil doesn't operate by logic. It's showing you the downward spiral, and it just wants you to sit in it and to see evil in all of its nonsensical splendor. And make no mistake, it's showing us what evil looks like when it infiltrates God's people. How they think this whole time that they're doing good, but they only compound the evil. Because evil hides in the shadows of compromise. At the beginning of the book of Judges, we saw how all of this began. When God's people laid aside God's mission. They stopped allowing his voice to be the foundation of their lives and their homes and their marriages. And they didn't consecrate themselves to his purposes and his mission to drive out the Canaanites. And instead, they chose to be a comfortable people whose lives were simply wrapped up in their own concerns and their aspirations for their life never got beyond their own lawn and their next vacation. And in this passage, it's showing us the end result, that a comfortable people will eventually become a compromised people, and a compromised people only compound evil. Even though they think what they're doing is good. Where they looked just like the world around them. They worshipped the same things, pursued the same passions, shared the same values as the surrounding world. Why? Because they didn't take evil seriously. When God told them to drive out the Canaanites and not do as they did, to not live as they lived, they treated all of that like it was a sweet little suggestion because they didn't see it as evil. They didn't see evil as a malevolent force that wants to chop them up piece by piece, marriage by marriage, child by child, idol by idol, generation by generation. They didn't see how God's command to consecrate themselves, to consecrate their lives to him was about protection, giving evil no quarter, and resisting evil and waging war against it. So in the end, whenever they saw evil, they just looked the other way. And evil just became something with which they learned to coexist. All the while, they became increasingly compromised. Because evil was slowly consuming them like a snake eating its prey. And they couldn't see it. And in this passage, it's begging us to see the damage and destruction and devastation that compromised people 
create. They didn't value one another. They lived for that idol of self, doing what is right in their own eyes. They used others for their own gain. They dehumanized each other and destroyed the vulnerable and the innocent, and they never truly recognized the evil among them. Because every time they tried to respond to evil, they just compounded more of it, and they weren't even aware of it. And that's the scariest part of this passage, is how a compromised people think that they're doing good, while in reality they only perpetuate evil. Because evil hides in the shadows of compromise. This passage is a warning of the people that we could become. And really, is it really all that far off? Does the church in our day not need to hear it? How many victims has the church stepped over on its way out the door? How many countless little ones have been silenced, shamed, discounted, and disgraced? All the while, we make sure to count views and click rates and cast checks. How many silent sacrifices have been heaped on the altar to shield reputations and maintain ministries with a well-manicured image of integrity? How many priests and pastors have been given promotions because they're too big to fail, because they're propped up and protected by Benjamites who side with perpetrators? How long will we look the other way and sweep them under the rug? How many failures do we have to see over and over and over again before we realize that we have been compromised? That we are driven by greed and status and idolatry and lust and bottom lines and earthly reputations that make us look no different than the surrounding world. And all the while, just like Israel, we think we're doing good while the body count grows. And our unwillingness to look at evil is so perfectly expressed in that question. Well, some good came out of it, right? Because instead of staring at evil, we just want to look the other way and keep the status quo. Evil hides in the shadows of compromise. This passage is a warning of the people we can become corporately, and individually. But secondly, it actually points out, it actually points to the beauty of the people that we could become and the beauty of the people that we are called to be. How so? In the midst of this broken world, in the midst of this broken story, Do you see this concubine? Do you see her? So nameless and voiceless and powerless. This silent sacrifice whose story longs for justice. She represents every anonymous victim in this story and in this world that longs for someone, something to come and put them back together. It is not enough just to see the evil in this story. We have to long for a goodness that can overcome it. It brings us back to that question that touches that skepticism deep within us. Is there anything that can answer such evil? Does anyone see her? 
How could anything precious come from so much pain? That answer has been right under our nose the whole time in this story, staring us in the face. It's her. She's here because God sees her. Do you know what God is doing in this story? Through this concubine, he's giving us the blueprint for how he will defeat evil. He's telling us how he will make all things new through a silent sacrifice. When God the Son himself will enter into all of her pain and redeem it by using it to overcome the world. It's the greatest Trojan horse story of all time. She points forward to Jesus who was also betrayed by his beloved for centuries for millennia. But he left his father's house to rebuild a relationship with his beloved and he offered grace and forgiveness. He went to his own people looking to be received and taken in, but he found that he was in hostile territory and he was not welcome. And then one night, he was surrounded by worthless men and he was betrayed by those he loved. He was pushed out the door into the hands of sinners so that they could save themselves. And they had their way with him all night, abusing him, breaking him, desecrating him. For like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Like a sheep before its shears, he was silent. He was silent for the voiceless. He was silent for the nameless. He was silent for the anonymous. And he stood in their place. He entered into their pain. He carried their sorrows. He bore their griefs. He bore their shame. He subjected himself to all of that evil so that when it appears as though all hope is gone and it feels like the world won, you can know that that is exactly where you can encounter the one who overcame the world. Because you better believe that Satan, sin, death, and every cosmic force of evil threw everything it had and summoned every power it possessed to keep him in the grave. But death could not keep its hold on him. Because in the morning, as the sun began to rise, Jesus crawled to the door of that tomb. And good overpowered evil. And life came from death. And do not forget that the resurrected body that walked out of that grave will forever bear the marks of this broken world. Those scars tell you that he made a full account of evil and that he will never forget your pain for all eternity. So that in that hopeless place, you would hear him say to you, I see you. I hear you. And I will put you back together. 
And as a perpetual reminder of these things, every week we live out this story where Jesus, our silent sacrifice, breaks apart his body and gives it to his people to unite them together as one man in purpose and mission to share in his victory for the life of the world. So how does this give us a picture of the beautiful people that we can be? Well, if the story of this concubine points to Jesus, then who does that make us in the story? It was our sin that held him there. He became sin for us. He bore the punishment of our sins before Jesus Christ and at the foot of his cross, we all stand condemned as perpetrators. And when you look at the cross, what about it says that you can afford to take evil lightly? When you look at the cross, do you really take evil seriously enough if it required the very death of God to destroy it? The cross is the ultimate expression of evil, and it shows the depths of evil within us. And for us to be the people that God has called us to be, for us to be a place of healing, for us to be a people of restoration and renewal who are willing to face evil, we have to begin with the evil within ourselves. Why? Because that is the beginning of no longer looking the other way. It's how we begin to see evil for what it is. It's how we begin to reawaken to the destruction that our compromise with it produces. How our selfishness and our pride and our lackadaisical nod to our own sin that we redefine as just a a little struggle and all the damage it causes in our families and to our kids and to our marriages and to our friendships and to our churches. All the while, we think we're doing pretty good. It's the cross that asks us, do you see the reality of evil and do you see the only thing that can overcome it? And it's through recognizing that that we recognize the need and necessity of consecrating ourselves, body and soul, to Jesus Christ our Lord who has a mission of restoration for his people. To be a community that enters into suffering so that his healing power might be on full display. Why? It's because we are the body of Christ. His body bears grief. His body carries sorrows. His body bears shame for the sake of others so that by his wounds they might be healed. Which calls us to be a consecrated people that don't look the other way from evil, but we look to to evil. We look for it, to find it so that it might be eradicated and healed. To be a church that can receive the wounded and the broken and the abused and the torn, tattered, beaten, desecrated, and enter into all of that pain and suffering with them. To be a church that's filled with stories that say, I was blind, but now I see. I was lame, but now I walk. I was ravaged, but now I am restored. We can be a community that receives all of the hurting that Jesus brings to us. Who crawl to our door after all the dark nights of the soul that this world produces. 
And we can say, I won't look away. I see you. Because he sees you. And we can know the joy of watching him put his beloved back together by his healing love and the goodness that triumphs over evil. But all that begins with looking at the cross and seeing our silent sacrifice for the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would consecrate us unto yourself. You'd give us eyes to see the evil in our own hearts and in our own families. Give us eyes to see what we don't want to look at. Give us the courage to face what we don't want to face, to be willing to see the damage that our sin has caused. Help us to see the reality of evil and help us to see our desperate need of you. To consecrate ourselves to you, body and soul. We ask that you would reveal your glory among us. We ask that your victory over evil would fill these pews. We ask all this according to your power, your goodness, and your sacrifice. And all God's people said, Amen.